0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first show. This is episode zero, Hello World. And you're probably asking episode zero of what, Uh, which is a really great question. So I guess that's where we'll start. So Shannon, what are we doing here?
0: John, we don't know what we're doing here.
1: (laughs) No, I don't think we do. (laughs)
0: But what we're going to try to do is bring every science nerd this podcast that's going to discuss technology and the use of technology, specifically in the geosciences. Uh, There's a lot of technology out there, and a lot of us don't know what to do with it, like myself. And a lot of us do know what to do with it, like you. So this is for all of our (laughs) science nerd friends to bring it together. Uh, John himself is a self-described technology nerd who also dabbles in the geosciences.
1: And Shannon, on the other hand, is a really great geoscientist, but for as long as I've known her, uh, she needs a little bit of help when it comes to the technology end of things.
0: That was really nice. I need a lot of help. (laughs) But so do a lot of you. Um, So that's why John and I have come together to bring you Don't Panic, because we want you all to remember it's not an exact science. Um, This podcast is going to bring you a lot of interviews with our friends who are leaders in the fields of geosciences, geology, meteorology, or just in general interesting persons that are going to talk about problems in geology, problems in meteorology, things that you guys want to talk about too. We also want to hear from you. John, tell them about the website.
1: You can find us at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Or if you want to email us directly, you can email show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And we'll give you all this again at the end of the show.
0: So let us know what you think, and we'll be certainly happy to take your suggestions about geosciences topics that you guys want to hear from.
1: Right, so we're just going to kind of banter back and forth about all these things, uh, talk about conference stories, and then we've got a few segments that we want to do too. For example, Fun Paper Friday. So as the show releases on Friday... Uh, we're going to bring you a paper that we think is interesting or relevant, and we encourage you to do the same thing. If you're on Twitter, you can use hashtag Fun paper Friday.
0: Yes, we all know that in the sciences, we certainly read a lot of research papers, but it's always nice to get out of our comfort zone and read something that's funny, quirky, or might spark some creative thinking on your part.
1: Right. So every week, we're going to go on like this for roughly 45, 50 minutes. We'll try not to take too much of your time. So to get started, I think we should probably introduce ourselves, Shannon?
0: Probably a good idea. Um, So my name is Shannon Doolin. I'm a newly minted PhD at a university that shall be unnamed. I'm an assistant professor, and what I teach is field geology. So there's a lot of technology in field geology that isn't necessarily used, and that's what we're going to discuss. I also teach a class called Native Sciences, and I look at indigenous stories and how they relate to meteorology and geology through the past several hundred years over the North American continent. I'm very interested in geoscience education and bringing out everybody's inner scientist is kind of one of my passions. And I know John's really interested in that too.
1: Right, so I'm John Lehman. I'm a PhD student at Penn State. So I spend my days studying earthquake physics in the laboratory. But I've got a background in meteorology and geophysics uh, from the University of Oklahoma, uh, actually just like Shannon does. So I'm very interested in both actual physical problems and these wonderful systems of equations and experiments that we can use to understand the Earth, but also sharing that, so uh, making demonstrations, communicating with the public, and mostly using technology to make all of our jobs easier and help us learn more about this planet that we're all stuck on together. All right, so it's definitely been a winter conference and winter travel season uh, for everybody. So, Shannon, did you go anywhere interesting this winter? Well,
0: I sure did. The Geological Society of America holds their annual meeting every year in October, and this year it was in Vancouver.
1: So, the Geological Society (laughs) of America had their meeting in Vancouver?
0: (laughs) Yeah, they sure did. We (laughs) understand the irony in that, but it's a really great conference, which actually extends to geologists all over the world attend the GSA conference every year, and it was in Vancouver. It was an amazing venue and a super beautiful city.
1: Great. So I heard that it was actually a green venue this year.
0: Uh, It was. um, Besides being on the water and having a beautiful view, the conference center's roof was entirely grass, so it literally was a green venue. Um, (laughs) But Their entire roof was a big lawn. Uh, There were seagulls up there all the time. It was really funny to watch them walk around and sit on grass on top of the convention center but it was a really <laughs> it was a really good building and a really great meeting and more importantly there were really good breweries all around <laughs> the convention center
1: <laughs> yes, geologists do love their beer generally.
0: Uh, almost more than they love their rocks. You're right.
1: <laughs> so other than going on a, a tour of all the breweries around <laughs> Vancouver, as I'm sure you did, uh, what about talks? Did you see anything that was really exciting?
0: Yes, John, we actually worked. Um, the most <laughs> exciting talk that we went to was the presentation of the Woolard Medal to Joe Kirschvink, and he is a paleomagnetist that's from Caltech. Uh
1: So paleomagnetism, uh, you're looking at things like polar wander and magnetization in rocks, right? Right.
0: Uh, Everyone knows we've got a magnetic field here on Earth, and that magnetic field changes over time. There's a lot of different ways that it can change in intensity, in direction, and paleomagnetists are the scientists that look at magnets in rocks that record the changing of the magnetic field over time.
1: And so, right, so you guys can go back to something like, what, 500 million years, around there, roughly? Well,
0: we we can do better than that sometimes, but um, 500 is probably a really good record of most of the continents on the planet Earth and how they've moved back to about 500 million years. Some people like to call us paleomagicians because you take these tiny, <laughs> tiny magnets that no one can see and you can reconstruct where the continents were over time. And what makes Joe Kirschfink's work really interesting is he's looking at linking how the continents wandered based on their magnetic records, and he's linking it to extinction events.
1: So, hmm. that's really interesting. So, timing them, or?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of extinctions in the rock record. A lot of critters have gone uh, extinct over millions of years that we're looking at. And now, we're trying to be a more synergistic science. So we're using PMAG. We're linking it to biology and saying that the position the continents were in changed the climate so much that it killed animals.
1: Hmm. That's really great. And there's a lot more of this kind of interdisciplinary mingling now. So did you see anything else that was kind of marrying a couple of disciplines together there?
0: I did. I did. A new thing that's happened at the last couple of GSA conferences that I've attended is that they have these things called digital posters.
1: Digital posters. Okay, so is this something that's replacing the paper, or is it more like AGU where you upload your poster to a database? It's
0: not just that. So GSA has had that for the last couple of years as well. You can upload your poster to a database so other people can see your paper poster. When we go to these science conferences, as many of you are familiar with, they have what they're called poster sessions. It's where we take big six-foot-long pieces of paper, and we basically print our whole research on them. People can walk by and read them. But these digital posters this time were really neat because they were interactive.
1: So are these... uh like touchscreen televisions or kind of a smart board idea, or how did they do this? Because I've always thought something like this would be a great idea. You don't have to, you know, take your paper poster and carry it on an airplane and get it swooshed <laughs> by people's roller bags and all that.
0: Exactly. We have all have an awful story about your poster getting crushed on airplane travel or on a bus in some foreign country, that's for sure. So <laughs> uh, as long as you don't lose your USB, it's a really good idea. They weren't really interactive per se, but I feel like that's coming very soon. These were mostly um, posters that displayed people's new software. There's a lot of interaction with Google Earth and making it usable for students to interact with. And so these digital posters would have a computer and then a very large television monitor where you could use the computer to interact with Google Earth, say looking at the structural geology of some far-off land students could never get to, either because of political reasons where we couldn't travel to these countries or because your geology department just doesn't have that much money to take you there.
1: Huh. That's a really great idea. And, I know it's probably a huge logistical challenge for these conferences that have so many posters to start thinking about converting over to this digital mindset. Yeah,
0: it Uh, really was. But they told us, I was interested in how they were doing this digital poster idea. And they told us that the conference center already had all of these televisions available to them. So it was really the venue that took care of those kind of logistics.
1: That's really great. So what kinds of things did you see on these posters. I know you said there was some Google Earth and that kind of thing, but what else was there?
0: One of the really cool ones that I'd like to talk about is using drones for mapping.
1: Oh, drones. This is going to be a good topic.
0: <laughs> it is like, I, I don't have a drone, I haven't used one, but I imagine that a lot of people do and that a lot of people have ideas on how to integrate them, especially into geologic mapping. A lot of what we do is going to an outcrop, looking at it for hours and hours and hours, and trying to understand what's happening. What's really neat about using a drone is that a lot of people can't get out to the field. A lot of geology programs don't have the resources to take 30, 40, 100 students out to the field to look at some of these outcrops. But if graduate students or undergraduates have drone access to drones, they can take these drones out and bring back those images to the classroom.
1: Well, right, and that's great for, you know, if you've got a student that's got a disability and would have problems getting into the field or anything like that. Exactly. So with these drones, I'm assuming it's not, you know, what we normally see where somebody straps a GoPro to a drone and flies over because that just kind of gives you a two-dimensional static image. So surely they're doing something a little more complicated than that. (laughs)
0: Most of the drone posters that I saw were actually just a GoPro strapped to a drone. But they are, a few of them ventured out into trying to produce stereoscopic images. So you can reproduce a 3D image based on these drone mappings.
1: Well, yeah, I think that'd be really great. Because then if you've got a student that's having a problem understanding something, they can actually go back to the outcrop. And you know, I know we've all had that experience where you're standing in front of an outcrop, and the professor or your guide says something like, it's intuitively obvious to the most <laughs> casual observer that some really complicated process happened here. And you just want to be able to go back and look at that outcrop again.
0: I swear, as a professor, I've never used those words. <clears throat> but <laughs> that's absolutely true. We all take our field notebooks out to the field to make observations, and we have our cameras but they're not necessarily married together, right? Two days later, you think, what did I just take this picture of? But with these drones, you have all kinds of you know, GPS, and you can know exactly where you are, and you can geotag the exact pictures, know exactly what you're looking at, and then can reference it that way. It's a really great idea, but there are some problems with it.
1: Right, so one of the ones that I can kind of think of immediately would be... Trespassing. Uh, we've all had that experience where if you could just get to the other side of that hill to see what's going on over there, and I guess it would be a little bit of a quandary if, you know, do you just launch your drone and fly over somebody's land? I
0: Yes, that's, that's exactly the problem. Where does this become trespassing? Is it right? Is it even right to take a drone out and access rocks that you wouldn't normally have access to just as a citizen of planet earth so i think there's a lot of conversation that's going to be had about using this kind of technology in the field certainly the benefits are huge but there are a lot of questions about how we should move forward with this technology
1: absolutely i know i mean even the faa has been struggling with coming up with regulations for these and especially when it comes to news media outlets and that kind of thing. Is it an invasion of privacy if immediately after your home was wiped away by a tornado, if there's a news agency flying a drone immediately overhead?
0: Exactly. Just because your house isn't there anymore, it's still your property. So where does the law stand on that? Uh, I would be interested in hearing from anyone who has used drones or has strong ideas about using drones or not using drones, and if it's beneficial enough that this is something we need to go forward to. Where can they get a hold of us, John?
1: They can get a hold of us at don'tpanicgeocast.com or show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. It's our direct email.
0: Excellent. Um, This is a conversation that's going to move forward in geology field mapping for the next several years, I'm sure, because it's a really good tool. But we'll leave it there for now.
1: Yeah, um, we could go on about this for probably the rest of the show. (laughs) So uh, yeah, we probably should move on.
0: (laughs) Uh, So where did you go this fall?
1: Well, I actually went to the American Geophysical Union meeting, which is kind of the other big gathering of the nerds. <laughs> and it was in, it, it was in uh, San Francisco, as it always is, at the Moscone Center. And let me tell you, this year, it was massive.
0: <laughs> it feels like it's really big every year. But who, so geologists go to GSA. Who goes to AGU? Uh,
1: just about everybody that, well, I would say everybody that studies planet Earth, but there are people that don't study planet Earth there, too. <laughs> uh, Really, uh, geologists, meteorologists, anybody that deals with uh, a physical science really on any planet goes there. And this year there were about 24,000 people.
0: Wow. That is. At the conference. That's a lot of people converging on the streets of San Francisco.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, downtown has to really kind of get ready. Uh, And the amazing thing was, I heard that 30%. Of the total attendees were students this time.
0: You're kidding. 30% of 24,000. That is an amazing number of students that made it out there. That's really cool.
1: (laughs) Right. And, I mean, it's not necessarily a cheap conference to go to either. So I'm really glad that people are able to get funding. And I know AGU has been really great about trying to help out students get to the conference. Uh, So, you know, like it was every year, it was great to see colleagues, current and past, uh, as long as you could find them. (laughs) In, in the mass. Um, but, of course, you know we do tend to converge on kind of the same posters and topics.
0: Yeah, that that's true. It's, it's in several buildings, right? It's not just one building that couldn't house all the talks that these people were going to, right?
1: Right. It's in several buildings. And this year we actually were also in the Marriott Marquis Hotel because there was another conference that was using Moscone North. Wow. Right, for the first part of AGU.
0: That's unbelievable. So... What kind of cool stuff did you see there?
1: Oh, there were all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, Let's see, one of them, uh, one of Jay Feinberg's students talked about friction, which is what I look at, so I was, of course, interested in this topic, but viewing friction as actually a fracture process.
0: Uh, What does that mean?
1: So saying that, really, there is no such thing as a standard coefficient of friction for a material but all friction is is just uh, this repeated fracturing process that we can explain with classical fracture mechanics and uh, to look at this they took some PMMA blocks so you know kind of just acrylic plexiglass blocks and we're sliding them against each other And it really appealed to the technology nerd in me (laughs) because they had strain gauges and high-speed video cameras and all kinds of really high-speed data collection on these blocks. And they could actually make maps in time of fracture propagating as these two blocks started sliding past each other.
0: Wow. So basically they took these plastic blocks and slowed it down enough that you can see just lots of, I imagine, lots of tiny, tiny little fractures, like microscopic fractures, as these blocks are being pushed past each other?
1: Right, and those fractures are at the interface between the blocks. They're not actually in the blocks, necessarily.
0: Wow. How does that happen?
1: Well, so it's, uh, you know, we won't go too deep into contact <laughs> mechanics. It's probably a whole other whole nother thing we could go into. But when you have two surfaces together, you get uh, some kind of joining of these frictional contacts between them. And they're saying that this kind of stick-slip motion on these is just a fracture process of those contacts. And that's what gives us these friction coefficients.
0: Do they do anything besides just camera? I mean, cameras is something that we've always used. And even slowing down the cameras, do they listen to these things? What other things do they use to track? Uh,
1: so he didn't listen to them per se. There are people that do piezoelectric sensing of these things. Uh, but he did have uh, rosette strain gauges at different locations on the block, so you could actually get the full three-dimensional strain in the block at all these locations as the fracture went by. And I don't remember what what rate they were collecting these at, but it was something that was just ludicrously fast. <laughs> uh,
0: that really takes us to a whole nother level that you can, in real time, model this data, doesn't it?
1: I, absolutely. And you know, from the electrical engineering standpoint, they're up in the, you know, gigahertz and terahertz and things now and really upper end RF stuff. But to geologists, if you're collecting at 100,000 samples a second, you know, that's really a, a data problem for a geologist.
0: Yes, that's an incredible amount of data. I was just talking to a colleague the other day. Where do you store that kind of data? I'm I'm assuming that's something we're probably going to be talking about in this podcast later on down the road.
1: Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about storage and backups. It's a topic that, as an experimentalist, is very near (laughs) (laughs) to my heart, and I'm sure yours as well. Uh,
0: Yes, data are prolific. But back to AGU.
1: Back to AGU. So uh, let's see. There was another poster there that... I uh, actually just was walking out of the poster hall and noticed this poster out of the corner of my eye, <laughs> and I'm so glad I did. Uh, sometimes it's how you discover the best posters.
0: It's know? true. Nothing uh, you were looking for, just something you walked by. Exactly.
1: Because it was totally out of my field, but it was using a coax cable. Uh, you know, so if you're not a, not a cord cutter and you've still got the cable <laughs> that goes from the wall to your television, just kind of the black ground cable, uh, it was using that, uh, modified slightly, as a strain meter.
0: Uh, I don't even understand how you could do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what they ended up doing was they would take cuts out of the cable. Uh, The coax cable has an inner conductor that the signal travels down, and then an outer braid that's a a shield and return. So they would cut that braid every so often down the cable, and that creates an impedance mismatch. It's kind of like seismic impedance, actually. So you could send a signal down it, and you would get reflections back. Uh, that's if you do it in the time domain. Electrical engineers really like to do things in kind of the frequency space. So they used pretty much a network analyzer, and they would send all kinds of frequencies down this cable and look at what came back, what frequency was reflected off of each of these little uh, nicks that they'd put in the cable. So as the cable was stretched or put closer together, they could actually see those frequencies shift. And it's it's really neat because it's a pretty low-cost way to do it. And they say that they've got micron resolution in the lab with this
0: micron on coaxial cable and like you said that's pretty cheap so that's always something that we're trying to expand upon is that technology is expensive but that's a pretty cool use of something that's been around for
1: a while right yeah i mean the electronics to drive it are a little bit pricey but most of it was made with student development boards Uh, and it was just really neat to see And it's very expandable. Right now, when you have strain meters in the field, you're generally looking at a pretty small area, but it's nothing to lay out a kilometer or two of this cable on the ground.
0: Uh, That could give us a lot more data as well. I'm imagining kilometer-scale strain meters, right?
1: Yeah, and the nice thing is you're not actually storing... I mean, this was working up in the very high frequencies, hundreds of megahertz to gigahertz, uh, but you're not actually storing each of those individual time points. You're just storing what the uh, reflected frequency was
0: oh that's always a nice surprise to uh, see something that you hadn't thought about using coaxial cable as a strain meter which is what I love about during winter travel season is that you go to these conferences and it's not necessarily the things that you meant to see it's these random things that spark your creativity and make you have ideas about your own research that you didn't necessarily plan on happening right
1: Right, and uh, so I just looked this up. For anybody that's interested, if you go to your favorite academic search engine (laughs) and look for coaxial cable Bragg grading strain meter, you'll be able to get to a couple of papers on this, and I was told that they have one that's getting ready to come out.
0: Excellent. Uh, What else did you do there? Didn't you chair a session yourself?
1: I did, so this was my first year to try chairing a session it was a little bit terrifying
0: <laughs> it, it definitely is I had mine last year at AGU as well
1: <laughs> and but this session actually it was not a standard session it was called a pop-up session
0: okay I think that's probably pretty new for most of us that attend conferences
1: <laughs> <laughs> right so this is actually only the second year that they've done it at AGU okay and the idea is it's students and early career people only that give the talks and that chair the session actually and each of the talks is five minutes or less.
0: So this sounds like TED talks, TEDx talks, right? Where they're just really small talks. What do you talk about? Your research, or
1: so there were some different ones. There was a session on water science, which had uh, really good attendance, and they did talk about you know more research topics in that. Our specific session was more on education and outreach, and also. Uh, we got combined with another pop-up session, actually. So we talked about switching disciplines and kind of some techniques you can use to do that. And I know we've both had an experience of discipline switching. <laughs> yes, and uh, it can be it can be tough.
0: Uh, yes, that's a topic near and dear to both mine and John's hearts. Is that we double majored in geology, geophysics, in John's case, and meteorology. Most people think that those don't go together, but in fact, they're intimately related. And I think we're both better geosciences because we're using that integrated experience to move forward with our research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so that's, we had some really good talks. There's, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, the link to the blog for the session that we had. We had a session blog so we could communicate with our presenters before, and now the presenters are actually writing up blog posts on the talks that they gave and putting them on the blog.
0: That's excellent. So you can follow up, which is always something, once you get back from a conference, you've seen so many different things that you don't remember. Uh, That's a really cool way to keep in touch with people instead of just leaving the conference and that's it.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure at some point we'll also talk about organization and how we each keep track of the thousands of things (laughs) that are going on in any academic's life. Uh, Yes. Uh, (laughs) But I had a list of things that were AGU follow-up items. Uh, You know, there were probably 30 things and different emails to send. And it's always a challenge when you get back from a conference.
0: Uh, yes, I totally agree with that. I'm still working down my GSA list as well. (laughs) And it wasn't nearly as large as AGU was this year.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was really interesting, uh, having that chairing experience, and we had a great turnout. Uh, we were a little bit nervous, you know, is it just going to be the presenters that show up to this <laughs> session?
0: I think that's always a fear as well. Where were they held? Were they in different rooms, or were they in the poster hall, or?
1: Uh, so we were actually in the Marriott Marquis. Okay. We were back in one of the rooms there. I think we were in Pacific H. Uh, but it was one of the smaller conference rooms. Uh, but overall, we, we filled the room. Uh, to capacity so hopefully next year we'll actually get a little bit larger room to work with that's
0: awesome I, in these five minute venues that's a really neat idea to get even more involvement from scientists that are attending these meetings who maybe don't want to go to the effort of presenting a digital poster or a 15 minute talk they can do these five minute talks and still get feedback on what they're doing because that's what's important to us
1: Yeah, and actually, since our session specifically was in education, it didn't count as your one abstract submission for AGU. So you could have a science abstract and uh, still give a talk in this session. Oh,
0: that's even better. That that was a very good idea for any sessions moving forward. I think GSA does a very similar thing as well.
1: Yeah, and actually, we were... More than surprised at the number of people that came, surprised that there were a lot of people in the audience that were not early career folks, that were there to support the early career folks.
0: Oh, well, as an early career scientist, that makes me very happy.
1: Yeah, yeah <laughs> it, was, it was really great. Uh, so I think that kind of wraps up AGU for me. It was a long week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, these conference travel is always really stressful, but as I hope you can tell we all get a lot out of it and as long as we take those ideas forward i think we're doing a good job as scientists
1: yeah and as i'm sure that you'll hear on the show i continually (laughs) have travel problems
0: (laughs) he does i would never ever fly in an airplane with john
1: No, uh, I'm coming up on something like 20 consecutive to later canceled flights now.
0: Consecutive?
1: (laughs) Consecutive.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, What was the worst one?
1: Oh, let's see. I've been stuck overnight in pretty much every major airport (laughs) on the way from anywhere to State College, Pennsylvania. Uh, Yeah, so probably being stuck in Detroit for about three days last
0: year. You'd think as a meteorologist, John, that you would understand um, when to
1: travel, right? You would think, but the <laughs> conference organizers and uh, our tiny state college airport don't always <laughs> seem to agree with that. So, what has uh, been happening interesting down there in your neck of the woods lately?
0: Well, a lot of what we've been talking about here in Oklahoma is these things called frost quakes. I'm hoping that you could shed some light on that, being a geophysicist and working with earthquakes. <laughs>
1: Right, so I think this would actually make a pretty good fun paper Friday. So, yeah, we'll have to uh, get a bell or some sounds for this <laughs> next time.
0: <laughs> More cowbell. <clears throat>
1: More cowbell, yes. Uh, so a paper, if people want to look at this, uh, Broche 2000, which will be linked in the show notes, and there are a few others around, uh, talk about frostquakes or seisms, they're sometimes called. Oh. And kind, kind of the basic principle here uh, is you get rainwater, and then this rapid freezing event afterwards. So you've got water percolating into the ground, and then a really deep freeze. And the soil really just can't adjust quickly enough, and you get these tensional fractures that occur.
0: Okay, so just because the soil is saturated with water, so not really necessarily snowfall, but actual liquid water is in the soil, and then really quick freezing causes it to break?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happens, and these are really kind of fun to look at from a geophysical perspective because they make lots of surface waves since the source is basically at ground level, at ground surface level, and they're commonly audible because there's nothing to really damp those audio frequencies.
0: And surface waves are the ones that cause most of the shaking at the ground,
1: right? Right. Uh, These do attenuate pretty quickly, though. Okay, so, so you've got to be close by. Yeah, they're kind of neighborhood scale events, generally, but they have actually caused damage before. Really? Yeah, they have. Uh, I believe in the paper they discuss actually what they can get up to on the shaking intensity scale. It's it's an impressive number for some of these events. Uh, there's a quote in the paper that I really loved, and It said, frostquakes are probably less likely to be recognized for what they are now than in the 19th century because of a more mobile urbanized population, which is less in touch with the land.
0: As a geoscientist, that quote makes me very sad.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's really true. And I know some of the smaller earthquakes that you guys have had in Oklahoma, I think people haven't even really noticed. They just... It, Keep going on.
0: Nope. I think that's exactly right. There are countless people who have said, you know, I was in my car, I didn't really feel it, and anything like that. But what's been happening recently is these big booms that people have been hearing. And you said that these frostquakes or cryo-seisms could be audible,
1: right? Yeah, they can be audible. So I know that was kind of thrown around. And uh, when I first heard about these booms, I thought that, well, maybe these are the cause.
0: Uh, yeah, and I think that was a lot of discussion here. But we have a great resource in Oklahoma, and it's the Mesonet. You can go to mesonet.org and see Mesonet data, and all that is is a bunch of meteorological stations that are in every county, at least one in every county in Oklahoma, and they measure all kinds of things, including the soil moisture and soil temperature at different depths. And I think during this time, the soil temperature wasn't quite cold enough to have caused big cryo am I right?
1: Yeah, I think these were uh, about a week ago. Uh, now it's when the show releases Friday morning, and we pulled the data and looked at it. And yeah, it's really it just barely dips below freezing close to the surface for a brief period of time, and deep in the ground, it was still well above freezing. So I don't know that seismes are the best explanation, and that's also what the weather service said.
0: That's right. Yes, we've had a lot of. Ground-shaking events, and now these big booms that probably aren't ground-shaking events in Oklahoma, but it's always interesting, especially when this phenomenon, which is so clearly weather-related and geology-related, happens.
1: Yeah. Well, and I guess kind of the other piece of evidence supporting these not being cryoseisms, probably, is that I think the 911 calls in the Norman area started at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And you would really expect these to happen in the coldest part of the day you know just before sunrise early morning or in the overnight hours even
0: Uh, okay they
1: yeah they do occur at any hour of the day but really you would especially when you're borderline temperature like this expect them to have happened a lot earlier
0: well we in oklahoma if it gets a little bit cold everyone gets thinks that we're living in antarctica so i can understand why this would be the first thing people thought of but this actually happened last year here right
1: Yeah, there were some reports last year, and as far as I know, there have not been any confirmed cryocysm events in Arkansas or Oklahoma. The state that is further south that has had confirmed events is Missouri.
0: Right, and this past weekend, they had some confirmed seism. so I guess that's probably what led us to jump on the cryocysm bandwagon as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, I would love to know the process of confirming that these are cryocysms. Uh, because they generally aren't recorded on seismometers. They attenuate so quickly. Uh, So is it just soil temperature-based or what? Do you have any ideas on that?
0: uh, No, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to have a seismometer right on top of the place where you had water percolating down and then freezing in order to see it, right? You said neighborhood scale.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes here that shows a picture of actually a ground fracture. caused
0: by a cryo seism really
1: yeah it looks like this one was last year uh uh, yep it was last january as a matter of fact i don't know if we'll ever really know what the source of these booms was Uh, so that probably really about wraps it up for the show do you have any other thoughts
0: Nope, but I am super excited to keep talking about all this technology and geosciences going forward, especially Fun Paper Friday. It's probably my favorite part of the show.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So, Shannon, why don't you tell them where they can find us?
0: Well, you can find us on the web at www.dontpanicgeocast.com and then on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo.
1: You can find me on the web at johnrlehman.com or on Twitter, I'm at geo underscore lehman. And Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. I think that about wraps it up for this week. So remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this show are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.